0: Hello, fat lads and lasses. It is the middle of the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. It's hot. It's way hotter than it ever should be. Don't even get me started on how hot it is. You know what would cool you down during this hot summer? Free books. I don't know how that follows, but stay with me. We are giving away two copies of a book by a guest of ours on our August 3rd show Dr. Cornelis Van Dam called In the Beginning talking about Genesis 1 and 2 and issues regarding creation and controversies regarding the understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 very good book very helpful we want to get it into your hands and so for two providentially favored winners in the US or Canada that's right Canada we've heard you and you're in on this one we will be giving away copies of this book. To enter, go to our website, onceforalldelivered.com. You'll see a link at the top for the Summer Delive away 2023, and we will get you in that drawing so you can possibly win one of these books. Again, onceforalldelivered.com and click Summer Delive away 2023. The contest ends August 17th at noon U.S. Central time, so get your entries in by then, and we will announce a winner on our August 17th show. So again, onceforalldeliver.com and click Summer Delivery 2023.
1: Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith.
0: Welcome to a very special Once for All Delivered. I am Andrew Smith joined by my usual co-host Caleb Castro. And today we have a special guest. Uh, we have with us Dr. Cornelis Van Dam. He is an emeritus professor of the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary, professor in Old Testament. And he is here to talk about a subject that is very important, a subject that's been a, a source of a lot of controversy and discussion, a uh, even in our Presbyterian and Reformed churches, and it is a subject on which Dr. Van Dam has a book called In the Beginning, Listening to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, This is what it looks like. It's available from Reformation Heritage Books. In fact, we're going to be giving away a couple of copies of it in the coming days, so stay tuned for information on that. Um, But Dr. Van Dam, it is good to have you with us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to to meet both of you.
3: Yes, we are very thankful. It's uh, uh, you know, just as Andrew had said, uh, you know, it's it's sad that this is uh that this uh in one sense that this book has to be has to be written uh in the sense of you know so many have fallen away and pushed against uh, what Scripture teaches regarding a a sequential six day twenty four hour uh, creation Week uh, and along with all the other matters that go along with it. Well, yeah, so uh, Dr. Van Dam, it's a, again, it is a pleasure to have you though, and uh, that I am so thankful for your book. I uh, also have a couple other ones here for any who who are listening and are interested in, uh, in seeing some of your other works. Uh, there's of course uh, of course your work on uh, the Urim and Thummim. Uh, Through this one, I have also the uh, first copy uh, of the actual uh, dissertation, I believe. Yes, um, uh, your dissertation with uh, the Theological School of Kampen, if I recall. Um, And this was the first uh, study on the Urim and Thummim since uh, 1824, I believe it was. Uh, So there's there's that, a highly valuable resource on the subject. Uh, You had also written... um, it also written a uh, book, uh, an excellent book, actually on, on uh, the office of elder and its biblical theological concepts. Uh, a uh, likewise, uh, twenty sixteen, I think it was uh, your book on the deacon. Um, it has served as a wonderful training manual in some congregations I've been with. So you uh, you put out quite a lot of uh, books that are uh, really fill. Um, fill some some voids that we have in studies. Um, well, if you would, uh, if you would please uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and just some of your own personal history. Uh, you're, you're you're entering into the ministry and uh, and then into your professorial um, your professorial uh, placement at the theological school.
2: Yeah, I was born uh, in the Netherlands. And in 1952, when I was six years old, our family moved uh, to Canada, It was part of the uh, post-war immigration uh, movement that happened at that time. Through the years, I've kept up with my Dutch and therefore was able to continue to benefit from the Dutch Reformed heritage. I had one year at Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, It was a great time. Uh, I sat under the feet of uh, Cornelius Van Til and also people like uh, Edmund Clowney. It was a very rich time. But during the time that I was at Westminster, our synod of the Canadian Reformed Churches decided to start their own seminary. And so I felt duty bound to uh, leave Westminster and go to Hamilton at the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary, where I completed my theological education I was ordained as a minister in 1971, and I served congregations in Alberta, Ontario, and British Columbia. And then in 1981, I was uh, appointed to uh, teach at the seminary. Now, during the time that I was a minister in Ontario, just outside Toronto in Brampton, I had uh, engaged in Master of Theology Studies at the University of Toronto, in uh, Knox College. And my mentor for the uh, thesis was uh, R.K. Harrison, who's a well known uh, conservative Old Testament scholar. So it was really great working with him. After I completed my Master of Theology degree, I started studies uh, long distance uh, with uh, Kempen, the Netherlands, uh, in the Old Testament field. And as you just mentioned, I eventually finished that. And uh, it has been published uh, as the a Now, I retired in 2011 uh, so after 30 years of service as a full-time uh, professor. But I'm so thankful to the Lord for my health and strength on continue research and writing. And it's a huge privilege. So it's also very nice to meet you. I admire your work of trying to spread a good thing through podcasts. And so i'm i'm glad to be your guest today
3: well thank you yes we're it's uh yes it's it's a uh you know it's a wonderful thing uh you know having uh the the means of technology as a blessing to be able to uh supplement uh the the ministry that the lord is doing um in his church uh now i i uh, i am at present preaching through uh just the opening uh, 11 chapters of genesis uh and so there has been great benefit as well from your book amongst other sources uh yeah so so it is uh it is being put think uh, to uh, good use you know even in the pulpit it's
2: great
0: yeah so um the subject that we wanted to have you on for today. It relates to your book, In the Beginning, and particularly, yeah, this subject of Genesis 1 and 2 and the subject of creation. Um, just uh, starting out, we were curious, um, you note in your introduction to the book that some of the chapters are drawn from articles you'd previously written and other engagement you've had. Could you give us a little more detail as to what uh, led you to compile them, and what led you to write and publish a book on this topic of creation well
2: it 's obviously a topic that is of great interest to many people, and over the years i 've uh, indeed spoken uh, in all kinds of meetings on genesis so it 's a topic that 's really uh, has an enormous interest in the uh, in the church, and so I was always glad to. Uh, be able to contribute to that discussion. And since I was a teenager, I was also very interested in matters of origin uh, from my high school days on. So it's always been an area of special interest. My main impetus for writing the book was uh, the growing acceptance of theistic evolution in conservative churches Mm -hmm. and in conservative scholarship. And that's very troubling to me because people don't always realize that when you adopt a theory like that, you're taking a lot more baggage than you realize because evolution uh, theory presupposes a worldview that is uh, hostile to Christianity. And so I thought I better, I should take the opportunity to zero in, especially on the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2 since it's the historicity of these chapters that is constantly under attack from different uh, directions and that was my main uh rationale for publishing uh, this material
3: yeah and you say from uh from different directions and uh you know that's one of the things where it's it's of course not just theistic evolution but of course uh there's the so-called gap theory and the the so-called day age theory um uh, amongst uh as we'll speak in a bit as well the framework uh, hypothesis uh now the, the one one matter of interest uh, you could say it's of uh, why uh, we ourselves um were hoping to speak with you is you know that there's a um there's uh there's arguments that that we hear from from individuals that reject the uh the biblical creation days um they'll they'll say that the bible nowhere teaches the age of the earth and that that a six-day 24-hour sequential creation is it's only a deduction imposed on the text it's it's more of a presupposition I mean could could you give us a could you give us your thoughts on on that kind of statement just elaborating a little more
2: Well it's true that the bible nowhere says at this point in time the earth was exactly so many years old uh, that's 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 fair enough however the scripture does give us genealogies that go back right to adam uh, Luke for example uh, has that genealogy all nicely set out now, there can be discussion about gaps in a genealogy because uh, the term for father can refer to grandfather or great-grandfather. So there can be gaps uh, in the genealogies, but that does not translate into millions or billions of years. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing is that something that's often overlooked is that Scripture gives Adam's total age of 930 years. Mm-hmm. Well, Adam was created sometime during the sixth day. So if that sixth day was millions of years, you've got a bit of a problem. You've got to either accept the theory or reject Genesis outright. Uh, So the biblical testimony is so strong. Uh, The fourth commandment, for example, speaks of six-day creation very matter-of-factly. So the onus is really on those who don't want to accept Scripture to come up with an alternative. And, of course, the alternatives that are coming up are coming up from views that are hostile to Scripture and reject the notion of uh, an inspired Word of God. Mm. It's really a battlefield of faith, uh, because even the science is only theoretical. It's, It's a hypothesis. And of course, as you know, the uh, Genesis 1 makes it extremely clear that a day is defined by evening and morning, Mm -hmm. and uh, a merismus indicating uh, one day. Mm. Um, So, related
0: to that, it, it seems that a lot of what is driving the modern-day rejection of the view of six days of ordinary length is this collision between what scripture says and what is being put forth by modern science. Obviously, we have Darwinian evolution that's Mm -hmm. emerged on the scene in the last couple of centuries, and all the things that have proceeded from that, and there has been attempts on the part of many to try to uh, in some cases, harmonize, in some places, even go beyond that to let evolution take precedence over what scripture uh, teaches. So, could you maybe speak in those terms? I know you'd mentioned you'd uh, studied some with Van Til and stuff. So, maybe about this relationship between scriptural authority and then what we can learn from general revelation and science as it relates to the creation issue.
2: Well, that's a very, very good question. And um, there's a lot of confusion on this particular point, the relationship of general revelation and the Bible. Um, First of all, I want to make it very clear that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently, we visited Dallas and met the the good folk at the Institute for Creation Research. And we, we discussed, among others, this particular issue. And I really, really admire the work they do there. I think it's a it's a great uh, institute, and I've written an article about mm. it in the latest reform perspective. Mm. But having said that, we should be very careful not to create the illusion as if the Bible is giving us key scientific facts that will enable a scientist to unravel the mystery of origins. It's uh-huh. just not that way. God says, you know, he spoke and it was created. God does not tell us the chemical reactions that took place. We have to uh-huh. accept that in faith. Uh-huh. So that's, that's one point that needs to be very clear. Um, it's not a scientific textbook, but what the Bible says is true. And science needs to factor everything that the Bible says into scientific theorizing about origins. So we have to be careful to um, keep our interests in scientific reality and facts, separate from the biblical testimony. Indeed, our scientific endeavors should be influenced by the biblical testimony. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to, well, what does general revelation tell us? Well, according to Scripture, general revelation reveals God's glory. General revelation does not reveal a list of scientific facts. It reveals God's glory, his greatness, as the Belgian Confession puts it, by the creation, preservation and government of the universe, which is before our eyes, his most beautiful book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are like so many letters, leading us to perceive clearly God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. And it leaves us without excuse. So general revelation can be defined as God's revelation of himself, uh-huh. of his glory, and so on. Now, you probably heard of John Whitcomb, because John Whitcomb and Morris wrote a book on the Genesis flood. Uh-huh. And he said, if we affirm that God has given two separate channels of revelation, of truth, one being scripture, the other being nature, well then, modern science is considered to be an independent, authoritative source of information with the Bible giving an independent source of information, and then how do you rhyme the two?
4: Uh
2: Uh, Only scripture is ultimately authoritative. Uh Only scripture is able to tell us how things started because only God was there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah
3: you know the uh actually uh a brief uh brief interjection uh interjection of another great benefit that i've found with uh not only this book but throughout your uh your various publications um your uh extensive um uh your extensive uh bibliographies the the, the materials in which you you uh in which you bring forth, um, you know, for more reading, I've, I've found to be uh, one of the most enriching elements of your, uh, of your works. Um, I had never bought, uh, the Genesis flood until, uh, knowing of it as well, uh, until reading through, uh, the section that you're referring to now. Uh, so I had just, so I was looking at it, uh, just a moment ago when you were saying that, um, related in this though uh i believe it's uh, so in on page 37 of uh in the beginning you you brought out a really uh excellent uh and shocking note you 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 mention in this relationship between uh the scriptures uh special revelation and authority and general revelation um that you, you on footnote 54 uh that that there are those who who do essentially conflate this special and general revelation um so i, I found it a shock that where you sort uh, or where you cite report 28 um from the crc's uh 1991 synod um where, uh, they had stated that the facts of biology are just as much words of God as the scriptures and to be accepted in faith. And then they continue on in, in talking about, uh, a, uh, in virtually a, a, uh, that science is purely reliable as, uh, uh, in terms of the things of God himself. Uh, that it's it's essentially this would say that they're binding as instruction. I mean, that's a disturbing amount. Uh, that's a disturbing thing, and that's that's only just in 1991. You know, how far has it gone since then?
2: That's right. Yeah, you put your finger on a very very important point.
3: Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, yeah it, it general revelation is essentially a matter of of faith um that, that uh, an object of faith it's uh yeah i mean and, and that's that was a that was already then a uh that was in a in a, a consequence or outflow of uh of the CRC's synod back in i believe it was 70 or 71 where there was a essentially a rejection of the inspiration of scripture that's right, or in inerrancy. That, yeah, that's a so that that's just a some twenty year, uh, that's a twenty year change in saying, hey, theistic evolution is acceptable to now saying general revelation is authoritative, uh, inspiration, yeah. uh, for these things. Yeah, um, it's continue,
2: also mm, sorry, very, It's also very remarkable that a Nobel prize-winning scientist has said it's beyond the competence of science to even come up with the reason or the manner of origins Mm -hmm. we can't we it's beyond their competence Mm -hmm.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And, and science is so often too just changing itself and what it has to say about these things it's never Stayed in one place for long. About about the only thing that science generally is agreed upon is that the Bible must be wrong.
3: But beyond that, mm. it's it's kind of anything goes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and we'll get to a little bit more of a uh, actually now um, moving towards uh, these these kind of claims. Uh, Andrew, I think you were going to say something there a moment ago. Nope. Nope. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the, you know, so, 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 uh, on a, on a historical matter, uh, going to this six 24 hour sequential days of creation, um, it's been claimed now that, that, you know, that this is not the traditional reformed position. Um, we, we've, uh, there are individuals we know of who would actually would say, um, that, uh, prior to the 19th century, the confessional reformed position was 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 not that, but that that we were uh, influenced by, especially in the United States, that we were influenced by uh, the Seventh Day Adventists, um, as and uh, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, in response to uh, the rise of Darwinism uh the seventh day Adventists were the ones really um really pushing and requiring 624 hour uh a 624 hour view and that was pushed upon the reformed and it's only then that that became uh that that became the argument hey this is all, this is the bible's position um would you have uh, how how would you, would you respond to a claim like that
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. I have heard that uh, said as well that we're to blame the Seventh-day Adventists for all this controversy. Well, (laughs) it's totally wrong because the study Bibles, as I call them, of the uh, Reformation era, clearly stated otherwise. So you have the English Geneva Bible of 1560. You have the Dutch States General Bible of 1637, 1636, 37, both of which had brief glosses to help explain the text for the people, mm. and affirming, you know, simply accepting the days as as normal days. Mm. As a matter of fact, the Geneva Bible was even endorsed by an act of the Scots Parliament in 1579. Mm. And the state's general Bible also had an official mandate by the Synod of Dort. So these notes uh, affirming the literal meaning of Genesis got official unction as well uh, in in that time period. And of course, as every Presbyterian knows, the Westminster Confession uh, says It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days. Mm. And all very good. You know, that's in uh, chapter 4, article 4.1. So that's Mm -hmm. simply a true reflection of Scripture. So it's not the Seventh Day Adventists that have the idea of a seven day or six day creation. No, it's the Bible, and it's always been held and understood that way.
3: Yes, there was a. Uh, I'm trying to find where it is. I think. I think I just found it. Um, no, it's not here. But uh, sorry, I hadn't had the page marked. There was a. There was a part where you, um, where you mentioned uh, in. In the, uh, you had the, uh, that, that, uh, the matter at Synod discussed, I believe it was in 1924, uh, the, the matter of, um, of the creation days. Uh, pr- I think you had mentioned that prior to the Synod, there was something of a a, a, a lot of, um, a lot of churchmen were holding to, uh, an evolutionary view or had adopted it. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: And yet uh and yet there was a, a strong pushback uh against that uh that led to um especially through the arguments of Klaus Skilder, um a uh the, the adoption of uh the traditional view um, by that synod later revoked, but um what was in what was of interest there for me was a um uh i believe you 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 mentioned how uh i think it was alders uh if i'm correct that 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 had recently been to the united states and was was um inspired by the americans uh uh adamancy on a 624 hour view uh is is that about right i think it was alders
2: yeah uh, the 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 main uh, source of influence uh on it could have been alders i just have to Alders was certainly familiar with uh, the english world um but yes. yeah uh, yeah i'm thinking of the framework hypothesis that came to the united states via mm. translations uh of uh, the writings of of rivertterbus Yes. Yes. yeah not mm. i I'm not sure exactly which part you're you're thinking of um, there was a Synod of Assen in the Netherlands that had to deal in nineteen twenty six I believe it was that had to deal with whether the trees in the in the paradise were real mm. and whether the serpent actually spoke mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. the Synod of Assen maintained a literal historicity of genesis
4: mm.
0: mm-hmm. I suppose that's important. To consider, as we look at it in our day, like um, when I was in seminary, a line I heard, and I've heard it from other sources as well, uh, they're interested in drawing the lines in different places. It's not a six days of 24 hours, six days of ordinary length. That's not where we need to fight. That's not where we need to draw the line. They'll say things like, well, we need to believe in a historical, Adam. That's the absolutely essential point. Um, we, we have to draw the line there, and that's where we should examine candidates, and that's where we should be interested. And anything beyond that is just unnecessary uh, quarreling and squabbling. But uh, it seems that there is in the reform tradition a history of, no, we actually do defend the Six days of ordinary length over and against other views when they try to come in.
2: Oh, definitely,
4: yeah.
2: We have to, indeed, simply maintain the obvious sense of Scripture as mm. God intended it. You know, God is an excellent communicator. <laughs> and the way God gave us the account of creation, it fits all times and seasons, all mm. civilizations, God put it in such a way that everyone, no matter in what century he was born, could understand what he was saying Mm. uh, without getting lost in detail.
4: Mm.
2: And uh, this is the genius of God's uh, clarity of Scripture. And so all through history, the mainstream Christian understanding has always been creation in six days. There's never been any meaningful diversion from that, and any diversions I've explained in my book uh, why they happened, and they happened due to influences from outside Scripture.
3: Well, and that hits on uh, something that uh, we'll uh, we'll take up in actually uh, in a little bit in in the speaking of the use of ancient Near Eastern sources, uh, because you know we've heard we've had. We've uh, heard the argument of the framework proponents saying, uh, you know, to ancient Jewish ears, uh, they would hear uh, Genesis one and they would instantly understand it as merely a poetical framework uh, uh, that, that it was not literal. They would hear the structure, and I'm not really sure how how you make how you make that claim, but so uh, that's a pretty bold claim, I believe. Would yeah. you uh, would you care to speak to
0: that, perhaps, and maybe uh, what in the text and as far as its genre and stuff helps to defend the narrative and historicity of the narrative?
2: Yeah, Genesis 1 and 2, of course, is part of a larger book. And what's really interesting is the way the book of Genesis is structured. It's structured according to the so-called Toledot, the deeds um, or the generations of. Uh, That is the framework, basically, of generations. These are the generations of. Now, what's interesting is that the term these are generations of can indicate that that what preceded is now being explained as to what happened. Mm -hmm. And so in Genesis 1, you have the account of creation. In Genesis 2, God tells you what happened with the creation that was made perfect and the fall of the sin. Later on, you have the generations of Terah. Well, what follows after that is the whole account of Abraham, what came of Terah's descendants. So the whole book of Genesis is one unit, one historical unit, because nowhere is there any indication uh, with all these and consecutives there's no indication anywhere that suddenly we're transitioning from myth to history.
4: Uh-huh.
2: It's it's uh-huh. one continuous narrative right from the beginning to the end, uh-huh. and the only exception being Genesis chapter one, standing by itself before the first, um, toledot the these are generations of, and that's a beautiful, you know, setup of scripture where uh-huh. the foundational chapter stands at the beginning. You cannot understand scripture without chapter one of Genesis. And then the narrative continues uh, showing what happened to that perfect creation that God made in the very beginning. And God Mm -hmm. reaffirms constantly throughout scripture that this was a creation in six days. I mean, he even took the trouble to put it into the Decalogue, Mm -hmm. the Fourth Commandment, which uh, most Christians hear every Sunday. So it's it's pretty obvious that the book of Genesis was meant to be a historical account. And when we start lifting out certain things and saying, well, that's obviously not historical, then Mm -hmm. the onus is really on the person making that kind of a theory. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you've heard of the framework hypothesis, and uh, that's one of the huge problems with the framework hypothesis, that they're trying to dehistoricize something within a larger book which is clearly historical.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You hit a uh, excellent uh, element there with, uh, you know, it was, said, it was said somewhat in passing, but I want to, I want to underline it for uh, those who would be listening. Uh, you, you brought up the, the law consecutive there. Um, and, you know, this is a, you know, that the, the markers in Genesis one uh, in particular, the, the, the grammatical features, um, I mean, really, do lend itself, uh, in, in, in showing that there's, there's, uh, there's really, uh, not any kind of poetic devices in there aside from that, uh, brief, um, praise that Adam, uh, of me, that Adam would give in, in, Genesis two, or, uh, you know, uh, that this at last is uh, bone of my bone, flesh, of my flesh, or in chapter one, 26, 27, when the Lord said that, uh, he made them male and female. Those are the only somewhat poetical features there. Uh, otherwise you, 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 you speak of this, the above consecutive, this is saying, and then this happened and then this happened and then this, and then this. I mean that 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 can't really be brushed under. That's right. So we we've hinted at it several times,
0: but uh, let, let's turn for a moment to this literary framework hypothesis. It's a view that has become increasingly pro- popular, even in our Reformed and Presbyterian circles. Uh, it was popularized by Meredith Klein and others. Uh, This idea, then, that the text of Genesis 1 is this uh, poetic structure that these days function in parallel. So, like, you have the first and the fourth and and so forth days that go together. Um, And that it's a a literary text, a poem, and a polemic, and not a historical narrative. Um, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that. Where did it come from? How has it been received, and what are some of the issues and, and concerns you have with it?
2: Yeah, it came from uh, the land of my birth, unfortunately. It came from Ari Northsay, and uh, he lived from 1871 to 1944. And when he published his views, people in the church regarded it with great suspicion,
4: mm-hmm. and
2: it never won the allegiance of the average church member now his work came to north america through the work of uh, Boss, huh. uh another old testament scholar and uh, as you mentioned meredith klein lee Ann irons and these kind of people have very much uh, popularized the view in uh, in north america now in terms of uh There's something beautiful about the way God set up his creation work, right? Day one, he created light. Day four, he created the luminaries. Day two, he created the sky. Day five, he created the creatures that fly in the sky. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can see a certain pattern there. But if you look a bit more closely, uh, to speak of two triads is going way beyond the evidence of the text. For example, day one, God created light, and he separated the light from the darkness. That's what God did on day one. So what did he do on day four? Well, on day four, he made the light bearers, and he set them in the firmament. And the firmament wasn't created yet on day one. It was created on day two. So it was obviously day four obviously came after day one. uh, Client says, no, no. Day one and day four talk about the same thing. Well, that's not what the text says. The text says, in day one, we mm-hmm. have the creation of light. In day four, we have the creation of the firm, uh, the uh, luminaries, which were placed in the firmament. So, create God's creation of light on day one was not dependent on God's light bearers because he created those later so scripture speaks of light as an entity that can exist by itself on god's command Mm -hmm. and you find the same thing in isaiah 60 uh, when it isaiah prophesies about the time when sun shall no longer be your light by day nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you but the lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord Mm -hmm. will be your everlasting light. So scripture says, look, God can create light just by itself. It doesn't need a luminary. Mm -hmm. But in the case of creation, God provided a luminary on the fourth day. So scripture clearly distinguishes the two, and Meredith Klein and company have no right to say day one and day four say the same thing because they don't
3: it's a very big assumption of uh uniformitarian uh operation of nature right that that things back then had to have operated the same way they do now
2: yes that's also part of their rationale that's right god used providence to create that's what they uh, say
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I've had a particular interest in uh, interacting with Klein and his works, just given some of my personal history and some of the circles I've run in. And, uh, yeah, it it is fascinating how it seems that Klein is, I mean, for one thing, very concerned about providing a structure within which uh, basically someone can believe all of the claims of modern science Mm -hmm. and then still Uh, go before their presbytery committees and such and say, oh, but I believe in creation in six days. But basically limiting God to his providence, like when you read, because it had not rained, Uh you really can see that Klein is working from some uh, almost anti-supernatural presuppositions, it seems, that, well, God can't operate outside of his ordinary mm-hmm. providence he basically god's providence is a limit even on god which just seems rather bizarre i think you also raised another really important point though is that the this view has been received with popular skepticism as someone fairly new to the ministry uh, you know recently candidating and you know talking with search committees and stuff there is very little Uh, hardly any, I would say, popular demand in the church for these positions. It's being driven almost entirely uh, from academia, from the seminaries. Most churches, uh, even many classes and presbyteries, they have no interest in these views being brought in and promoted. And I think there's a certain disservice being done in the academy where it's teaching guys these views and promoting these views to prepare them to minister in churches that don't believe these views and have no interest in them. I think it's a real problem that needs to be reckoned with. Mm. Yeah, and
2: that's why we can be so thankful for the average church member that pushes back, Mm. because that shows that God's word is clear. And we don't need scholars to tell us what Genesis 1 means, because Mm. God wrote it up in such a way that even the simple can understand. Mm -hmm. But the part that scholars often forget is that you need to have faith like a child? Mm-hmm. If we are children of God, we simply accept what the Father tells us, and we we don't question it.
3: And that's uh that's an appreciated point that uh, I found you you uh, reiterating. I mean, keeping consistent all the way throughout uh throughout your book that you, you are you are constantly uh pointing back to Scripture says Scripture says um you know in in, in it's a uh, I mean it's a refreshing thing where um I mean you yourself are, are uh have served as a professor, but first and foremost you're a, a Christian and a uh and you're self bound as a minister.
2: That's right. Yeah.
3: The um yeah, there's uh uh there was a quote that uh that Klein had stated uh in his intention and it seems to be quite telling. Um uh i can't recall if it's uh if it is in your uh if you've noted it in your book but i i um this this quote is from uh this quote is from part of me um make sure i have the the right citation there uh there we are so he 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 makes it clear that um the Pardon me, I'm pulling up, <laughs> I'm pulling it up from my notes, so it's taken me a moment, because I had not thought to prepare this one. Um, so he, he, he speaks of, uh, that to rebut the literalist interpretation of the genesis creation week propounded by the young earth theorists is a central concern. Uh the conclusion is that as far as the time frame is concerned with respect to both the duration and sequence of events, the scientist is left free of biblical constraints in hypothesizing about cosmic origins. So he 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 had a he had a, a compulsion to be, uh, for, uh, uh, moving away from the biblical constraints, as he says.
2: Yes, yes, that's, that's right.
3: It's disturbing.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's driving a lot of this to try to harmonize science and the Bible. And, uh, you can't harmonize the Bible with current mainstream scientific theory.
3: Yes. Um, I'm sorry, that I believe, was uh, the article just for clarity was uh, Space and Time in the Genesis Cosmogony. Yeah. Um, so, just, uh, just trying to find that so we know it's a real quote. But
4: <laughs>
3: uh, I've also
0: noticed, too, just in the way that Klein talks about these things, he talks about it in a way that. Uh, he asserts his view, but he does so in a way that almost is like very condescending to those mm. who disagree. Like he says that mm. serious exegetes essentially would not uh, hold not only a, a six days of ordinary length, but any kind of sequential view of creation. And it's just it's very strange to me that he with such certainty and with such uh I guess vigor attacks what has been the almost consensus view of the church throughout its history.
2: Yeah, it's really really too bad. I had a course from Klein on Zechariah and I mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. Like he, he mm-hmm. obviously a top-notch scholar.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But
2: it's such a tragedy that on Genesis he has gone the way he has gone.
3: I think um in in kind of preparing to transition there uh there, there's uh, an, an interesting, um, uh, feature that Klein and Irons had put forward, um, you know, in, in I guess you could say developing, uh, Nazi's positions was that th- this idea of this upper and lower, uh, register that, that Klein is, uh, you know, it's, that Klein is conceiving of the Genesis account being spoken of and portrayed purely from the perspective of heaven. And so it it's, it's spoken of in a, uh, the account is given in a theological, um, figurative way. So we're reading chapter one. It's supposed to be figurative. What I'm, what I was curious of, uh, you, you got my brain ticking a little bit when you started speaking of, uh, of, uh Hermann Döblward um with his cosmonomic philosophy um could you explain a little bit about uh i guess uh Delivert's, um I guess, first of all uh to explain for those unfamiliar uh this this cosmonomic idea and how that may have affected um, modern interpretations, like the route that the CRC went in rejecting these things. Um, but also, is there any, does it seem to be any kind of tie between this cosmonomic idea and this upper register?
2: Yeah, that's a huge area. Let me just make a yeah. few points to, to orientate ourselves. hmm Doiver had all kinds of modalities, and according to him, you have faith time, which is outside cosmic time, and the days of creation. So the days of creation do not belong to historical time, but to faith time. They belong to in the beginning, Uh, so they're not really part of created reality as we know it. So in that way, he totally takes um, the, the time of Genesis out of current reality. Mm. Now, when Klein uh, talks about the upper register time and works with it, uh, he does appear to be influenced by this somewhat. Uh, but I find it a bit troubling and a bit bizarre that Klein would postulate this, because obviously in Scripture, there's no basis for a heavenly time being separate from earthly time. They're synchronous. Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
2: mm-hmm. Now, apart from the mystery of eternity, uh, when God speaks about time between heaven and earth, it's it's synchronous. Um, mm-hmm. Job uh you know, he got messengers from heaven and if Satan was up in God's presence, came down to, uh-huh. to Job. I mean, they were in the same time uh, slot, right? Uh-huh. And uh, it was the same with uh, the spirit being sent to entice Ahab uh-huh. to, to do the foolish thing he did. So there's be no reason for it. And uh-huh. that is why in Holland, one of the biggest criticisms of Doivert was that he's as Created this huge edifice, uh, philosophical edifice, but how does it relate to reality? Uh His modalities and his different spheres um, Uh are theoretical, but how does it actually relate to the Christian faith? Uh His his intentions were honorable, and, and, you know, he's a very bright man. But when it came to science and and origins, Uh uh,
3: it,
2: it wasn't very helpful.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah and the uh in in moving a bit away from uh partially from there um it, into these kind of other philosophical science related positions um uh first i uh, uh, i'd like to i guess uh transition a little bit here to to theistic evolution and perhaps the the most in In a lot of respects, the most serious of uh the most serious and disturbing of these things for all, all these positions day age gap framework even if there's a denial that there's evolution uh, amongst these groups it really does kind of kick the doorway open to theistic evolution like there's really not a huge issue with embracing it um and even potentially denying some kind of historical atom. Um, yeah, how so first of all, uh, would you be able to speak just a little bit on uh biologos, uh, Bio um, uh, which has done quite a lot of work in promoting theistic evolution? But then, how, how should Christian handle claims about this seeming appearance of uh, an old earth and uh, the ideas of an animal death before the fall? those sort of positions, uh, interpretations of science that people say, hey, this supports evolution?
2: Okay, those are very good questions. Um, Can't say everything here, but let me just uh, mention one or two things. A lot of people are convinced by, you know, the rocks, the fossils, very, very old, obviously, and So when people go to the Grand Canyon and they're told it's millions or billions of years that are involved, they they swallow it because, yeah, it it all looks kind of old. However, uh, we had Mount St. Helens, 1980. Um, I was living just outside Vancouver at the time, and Mm. our house literally shook. Uh, It happened at 9 o'clock Sunday morning. I was just left more of my sermons to uh, proclaim, to preach the word. And I ran upstairs. I said, boy, there must have been a gas explosion in the neighborhood. We turned the radio on, and the first thing the announcer said was, Mount St. Helens just blew its top. So that was Mount St. Helens. Well, 10 years later, we've got geographical features that geologists attribute to millions of years of development. For example, the new lava dome, Scientifically investigated and dated, yielded the ages of 350,000 years (laughs) to 2.8 million years, and the dome was less than 10 years old. (laughs) So we've got a problem here. Even the BBC reported that carbon dates were wrong by thousands of years, and the further back you go, the bigger the error becomes. Now, that's one thing. The other thing is the dinosaurs. Uh, you know, they're mm. they're they're very very old, of course, and no way do they fit into creation. Well, now uh, Mary Schweitzer was the first one, but they discovered soft tissue in dinosaur bones
4: mm. mm-hmm. in,
2: in fossils,
4: mm-hmm.
2: which is, it's just they cannot last more than years. It's it's totally crazy to even suggest that. And, and so this is another strong uh, indication of the recent flood and the uh, the rec- relatively recent age and thousands of years of these dinosaur bones, uh, dinosaur fossils.
3: Yeah, the uh, Schweitzer. I uh, actually just read that a couple of days ago in, um, uh, what was it, uh, Jonathan Safadi. Uh, Jonathan Sarfati's, uh, the Genesis account. Right. Yeah. He, he, he does a really great job in condensing that and showing the significance, um, uh, the significance of that, uh, as well as I had a, actually a professor in my own, uh, undergraduate program, uh, professor of, of, um, uh so he he was a scientist um he actually did his dissertation on uh exactly what you spoke of in uh the Mount St Helens explosion in doing the work in dating uh those samples in disproving that uh you know that those were millions of years old um so that was his 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 actual uh, his, his direct work <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh, funny it's uh he was actually one of the most influential men in, i think in helping me maintain that position uh, amongst uh, a, a large group there of theistic evolutionists. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice to hear that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, do you have a, a follow-up on that question uh, or in, in touching on any of those elements? Um,
0: I don't, actually. I think mm-hmm. you've uh, pretty well covered those topics. Um, Caleb, do you have any additional thoughts
3: or questions or? And no, not, not, not in particular. I mean, the, 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 I think, I think, uh, I think, uh, Dr. Van Dam, you have, you have said, um, the core there of, uh, we basically, we need to really be careful in not taking the scientific, uh, data uh, and, or uh, pardon me, taking the scientific conclusions of the data uh, and just saying, hey, well, these are what the experts have decided.
2: Yeah, we have to realize they are theorizing about issues that are really outside their competency because these are things that occurred in the past and you cannot recreate the past mm. unless you assume that all processes continued at the same rate as they do today. And it's precisely that notion that is mm. contradicted by scripture. Like, if you want to talk about climate change, that sure happened in the time of the Noecan flood.
4: Mm.
2: Uh, you know, it was God's judgment. And we have evidence mm. of fauna and palm trees growing up in the Arctic, Canadian Arctic, mm. uh, in in terms of fossils and stuff. So clearly the climate changed drastically,
4: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, probably uh, after the uh, Noecon flood. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: And we cannot reconstruct all that in a manner that guarantees accuracy. Mm -hmm. And of course, creation, when God created the world, it was a mature world. Mm -hmm. Adam was a full-grown man. And if we believe that Jesus could change water into wine, a process that normally takes months, Mm -hmm. he could do it in milliseconds. Mm -hmm. Why could God not call creation into account in milliseconds if he wanted to? So it all comes down to faith again and accepting scripture as the Mm -hmm. word of God. And recognizing the limitations of science, Uh, as uh, Peter Medawar said, you know, science Mm. cannot uh, say anything uh, for sure about origins. It's outside their competency. It's not something you can reproduce and do over and over again.
3: Mm hmm. The, and in in, in something of a related uh, element there, um, the, how would you explain uh, for listeners the 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 distinction say between kinds and what uh, what what the what uh what is being spoken of in Genesis 1 and 2 as 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 kinds versus this this Darwinist uh modern notions of of species in the cataloging of of uh in the cataloging in in zoology and biology? Uh, what's kind of the difference between kinds and say these ideas of species?
2: Yeah, I'm not too familiar with that area. I hesitate sure. to speak on that. The only thing that I know is that with the Noahic flood, God was able to put into the ark everything that was necessary to repopulate the world mm-hmm. with phenomenal diversity.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, creation scientists usually speak of uh, kinds uh Which would allow to develop the species, if I'm correct. I'm I'm not completely sure.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you, I think, I mean, you you got the core of that. I think of of, of the main matter. Uh It's not necessary that literally every single individual species or, or particular animal had to be on, say, the ark. That's but, right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I believe we've uh, worked through all the major questions that we have. Um, Dr. Van Dam, we thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this discussion. I hope our listeners find it helpful. Um, As we mentioned before, uh, we have your book, In the Beginning. Uh, We're going to be giving a couple of copies of that away. You can visit our website, onceforalldelivered.com, and get the details on that. Is there anything else? Uh, that you're working on or that you're involved with that you'd uh, like to bring our listeners attention to?
2: Well, at the moment, uh, most recently I published a book called worship matters. Mm. And just recently it came on Amazon. I mm. think yesterday, a book called in holy service, which is about office, personal and ecclesial. And what our duty is as Christians, uh, in our family context, in a church context, and so on. So those are two recent publications. I'm also now working on a scholarly introduction to sacrifice and Mm. feasts in the Old Testament.
3: Oh, excellent. Mm.
2: So God willing, God willing, Lord willing. Yes. But I appreciate your uh, using a podcast format to try to Remind people of the riches of god's revelation and its mm-hmm. impact on our life as Christians, so I wish you God's blessing moving forward
3: yeah well, we thank you and and, and likewise, uh, are there any uh yeah any other uh, uh perhaps concluding thoughts or something there or that we uh, uh you know will be keeping you in prayer, especially in your endeavors
2: well, I guess what I'd like to say is that people should be aware of how corrosive Theistic evolution is, Mm -hmm. first of all, there's no scientific basis for it, strictly spoken, because the evidence is lacking. But corrosive, theistic evolution Mm -hmm. is so corrosive because it's a worldview that's hostile to God. Mm -hmm. And if we are only animals descended from apes, then there's no need for morals. There's no need for
4: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, ethical living, Uh, and therefore, the education our children receive at the home, in the church, mm. in the school is so critically important. And God uses that to build faith in in our children and children's children.
3: Yes, the uh, you know that's it, it's it's so it's so true. In that uh, what what we're looking at is um, I think you actually you actually mentioned in uh, the latter part of your book and saying the uh, you know evolution in darwin is just you know of course one factor that has led to uh to significant uh impact in the church with a uh, rise of agnosticism and atheism um but it is uh, a huge driving factor it has it has been um perhaps one of the biggest tools that satan has used in in uh in deceiving uh you know a western society that had once been so reliant upon scripture
2: that's right yeah and the tragedy is that those who hold to th- to theistic evolution are in danger of losing the faith altogether
3: mm.
2: and i gave examples of that on my book as well
3: yeah that was a that's an excellent area um i think i was towards the end in uh yes page 290 to 292 uh you know that that the You said that it is uh, page 292, uh, a 2016 Discovery Institute uh, nationwide survey of a representative sample of 3,664 American adults sought to ascertain the impact of evolutionary ideas on those who lost their religious faith. And it showed, you quote, that unguided chemical evolution in the Darwinian mutation slashed slash selection mechanism are the most significant drivers of science related erosion in faith in god and you quote uh American philosopher Daniel Dennett who calls Darwin's notions a universal acid that is so corrosive that it eats through just about every traditional concept uh that's uh i thought that that was a really uh really um Poignant uh, statement there, you know it, it is a faith. It's a religion, essentially. That's right.
2: Yeah, it's a religion. Yes.
3: Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you placing that in there, and uh, and uh, for any listeners that that uh, Lord willing would would pick up this book, uh, I, I especially recommend that section on on uh, two ninety 290 to two ninety two, and then you, you go on to speak also of how this has affected uh, once conservative churches. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, again, uh, yeah, those are those are good thoughts. Um, I like the way you put that. It's it's firm, but it's fair. Um, mm. This is not a question of of uh how do we harmonize science and faith. But it's really in many ways it is a choice mm. uh, that has to be made. Um, at least as far as science and what it has attempted to say and do as it pertains to the questions of origins. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, Dr. Van Dam, we thank you for your time. Uh, we appreciate you coming on and talking. Um, again, to our listeners, uh, pick up this book. We think it'll be very worth your time, very helpful to you. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us at OFADpodcast at gmail.com or at OFADpodcast on most social media. Um, If you have any questions, comments, uh, things you'd like to follow up on, uh, again, we're giving away a couple of copies of In the Beginning. Uh, We'll have that contest live, and uh, we'll be running through August 17th, uh, noon on August 17th Central Time, so you can enter for that. I get an opportunity to get a cup, get a copy of this book for yourself. And uh, again, we thank you for joining us and uh, we hope you will join us again next time on once for all delivered. Caleb, any, would
3: you like to say goodbye? <laughs> yes. I'll uh, also say, yeah. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Dr. Van Dam. We'll, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. All the best. Bye bye. Yeah. God's blessings.
2: Yes, me
1: too. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our Substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.